Good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for uh, joining us. Needless to say, for millions of Americans, the smash Broadway musical Hamilton made this previously relatively obscure founding father, Alexander Hamilton, a household name. We all know that Aaron Burr's name was made infamous by his having killed Hamilton in a duel. What most people don't know is that Burr then went on to even greater infamy when he plotted to overthrow the United States in what is known as the Burr Conspiracy. We're very fortunate indeed this morning to hear directly from the man who literally wrote the book on the Burr Conspiracy, Professor James Lewis. Dr. Lewis is a professor of history at Kalamazoo College, as Rob just said, where he has taught since 2003. He is the author of a number of other important books, namely The Louisiana Purchase, Jefferson's Noble Bargain, John Quincy Adams, Policymaker for the Union, and the American Union and the Problem of Neighborhood, the United States and the Collapse of the Spanish Empire. Professor Lewis earned a bachelor's degree in government and foreign affairs from the College of William and Mary, a master's degree in history from American University, and a PhD in history from the University of Virginia. With that, please join me in welcoming Professor James Lewis. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Clark. I'd also like to thank Rob and Sarah for arranging this event and uh, all of you for attending. Uh, I wish I could be with you in your beautiful church. Uh, for one thing, uh, Benjamin Henley uh, Latrobe, uh, the architect, provided some very valuable quotes from my book, uh, and I pay him a little tribute by being there. So what I want to do is uh, provide a quick overview of uh, the Burr Conspiracy, uh, then tell you how I approach it in my recent book, uh, and then, of course, leave plenty of time for questions. So let me uh, see if I can get this uh, PowerPoint up and running. All right. In August of 1807, Aaron Burr was put on trial for his life in Richmond, Virginia. Burr was a Revolutionary War hero, a leading figure in New York state politics, and the former Vice President of the United States. He was also the man who had killed Alexander Hamilton, a political rival and former Secretary of the Treasury in a duel. But Burr's trial had nothing to do with Hamilton's death three years earlier. Instead, Burr was on trial for treason accused of plotting to divide the United States at the Appalachian Mountains in order to erect the Western states and territories into a new empire spanning both sides of the Mississippi River. Six months earlier, President Thomas Jefferson had announced to Congress and the public that Burr's guilt of this crime was, quote, placed beyond question by various evidence that had reached the nation's capital over the preceding year. The most important disclosures had come from there's Burr, sorry, from James Wilkinson, the commanding general of the US Army, and included a letter in cipher in which Burr had called upon Wilkinson to join in a vast but somewhat vague enterprise in the West. By the summer of 1807, many Americans had come to share Jefferson's certainty about Burr's guilt, believing, as one observer put it, that the trial would end with, quote, an exhibition on the tightrope. In other words, Burr would hang. 
But less than a month after Burr's trial began in the Federal Circuit Court in Richmond, presiding judge John Marshall, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, handed down a ruling that ensured Burr's acquittal. Two weeks later, Burr was also acquitted on the lesser charge, a mere misdemeanor in fact, of organizing a military expedition against a nation at peace with the United States for planning to invade Spanish Mexico. These acquittals would have little impact on Burr's reputation. For the rest of his life and beyond, he would be remembered as a would-be traitor and a national villain, second only to Benedict Arnold in the minds of many Americans. A review of the memoir of Burr that one of his longtime supporters published shortly after his death in 1836 explained that, quote, there are two classes of men, the study of whose lives is especially profitable, the signally good and the remarkably bad. And in the 1830s and for decades after, few Americans would have wondered in which class to place Burr. By the time of his trial in Richmond, rumors had swirled around Burr for more than two years. When he ended his term as vice president in March 1805, his political hopes in the East seemed to be dashed. Over the preceding four years, he had lost the trust of most Democratic Republicans, including President Jefferson, who had helped keep Burr off the ticket in his 1804 reelection campaign. So blocked at the national level, and rejected by the party that he had helped to bring to power in 1800, Burr had turned to state politics and had courted the opposition Federalists when he ran for governor of New York in 1804. Defeat in that contest had set in motion the process that ended with Burr standing over a dying Hamilton on the heights at Weehawken, New Jersey in July, 1804. The following spring, within weeks of completing his term as vice president, and yes, he went back to Congress and served out the rest of his term as vice president, even with a murder indictment hanging over him, Burr set out on a tour of the Trans-Appalachian West that included nearly every state and territory. Everywhere he went, everywhere he had been, East and West, people wondered about his movements his meetings and his intentions. As early as July 1805, an anonymous piece in a leading Philadelphia newspaper could already ask, quote, how long will it be before we shall hear of Colonel Burr being at the head of a revolution party on the Western waters? After returning to the East in late 1805 and spending time in Philadelphia and Baltimore, excuse me, in Washington, Burr headed over the Appalachians again in the summer of 1806. Across the back country and the West, from upstate New York, through Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee, all the way to the Mississippi and Orleans territories, Burr or Burr's agents recruited men. At Beaver, Pennsylvania, Marietta, Ohio, and Nashville, Tennessee, they also had ships built and arranged to purchase supplies. But to what end? Byrd never publicly announced his intentions or his destination. Some people believe that he was preparing to attack Spanish Florida or Mexico. 
Others that he was trying to create a new nation west of the mountains, centered on New Orleans. And others that he was merely organizing a new settlement on an immense tract of land in the Louisiana Purchase. In the fall of 1806, and for months afterward, most people, though, were struck by the difficulty of determining Burr's true plans, often describing them as, quote, enveloped in mystery. Even as the crisis ebbed in early 1807, for example, former First Lady Abigail Adams could describe Burr's projects as, quote, enveloped in as many mystery as Mrs. Ratcliffe's Castle of Udolphus, referring to one of the period's most popular Gothic novels. By mid-December 1806, when Burr, his men, and his boats began moving on the Ohio River and its tributaries, much of the public had turned against him. Writers in a number of Western newspapers had raised the alarm. The federal district attorney in Kentucky had unsuccessfully hauled Burr into court on two occasions. And a special agent from the administration had arrived on the upper Ohio River to warn the various state governments. Ohio state officials seized 10 of Burr's boats at Marietta and narrowly missed stopping the largest group of Burr's men at Blennerhassett Island, further downriver. A few days later, Burr himself left Nashville with a smaller group of men and boats. By late December, these two parties had met up at the mouth of the Cumberland River. From there, they would float down the Ohio and Mississippi rivers toward New Orleans. As they did, General Wilkinson turned New Orleans into an armed camp, sending in his troops from the Western frontier and strengthening the city's fortifications. Wilkinson also launched what many contemporaries described as, quote, a reign of terror by arresting Burr's actual and presumed supporters and running roughshod over civil authority in the form of the governor and the courts. In mid-January 1807, Burr stopped his boats on the Mississippi above Natchez and surrendered to that territory's civil authorities. After an abortive trial there, he abandoned his supporters and headed east toward either Spanish Florida or the nation's capital. And in late February 1807, he was arrested in disguise north of Mobile, then a Spanish town, and transported to Virginia for the trials that would conclude seven months later. All right, let me get back with you all. Just one second. All right. So this is going to be hard to believe, I know, but I'm not the first person to become interested in these events. Historians and biographers have written about the Burr conspiracy for more than two centuries. Literally dozens of books and articles, popular and scholarly, have been published on the Burr conspiracy's myriad aspects. Most of them focus upon Burr, Wilkinson, and Jefferson, the cabinet, the courts, and Congress. These works generally attempt to reconstruct the story of the conspiracy, answering such questions as what were Burr's plans? Who else was involved? What was Wilkinson's role? Why did Jefferson respond in the way that he did? And how did Burr ultimately go free? 
In doing so, they have sought to answer the same questions that were being asked and answered at the time in 1805, 6, 7, and 8. There are two problems with these questions as I see it. Uh, the first has been recognized for decades and expressed anew by nearly everyone who has written about the Burke conspiracy. It is essentially impossible to answer those questions with the sources that survive. Those questions, for the most part, concern the thought processes of a relatively small number of men. Most obviously Burr, Jefferson, Wilkinson, Marshall, but also a handful of Burr's leading supporters and a number of federal and state officials who acted to defeat Burr's plans. Answering those questions with any degree of confidence requires reliable documentary evidence from those individuals. But more so than for other major public events of two centuries ago, the documentary record for the Burr conspiracy is both incomplete and unreliable, and particularly when it comes to those most important men. So that's one problem. The other problem, and at least to my mind, is that even if we could answer those questions with confidence, I'm not sure we really would have added that much to our understanding of the early American Republic. Because ultimately, the long-term impacts of Burr's plans and actions and of Jefferson's and Wilkinson's responses were pretty limited. Now, I don't wanna entirely discount the value of understanding uh, what people were trying to accomplish, even when they failed to accomplish it. Historians do that all the time. It can be a very profitable avenue of research, trying to figure out what people meant to do, even if it didn't come off. But I think the Burr conspiracy can be more revealing about its era if we tackle it with a new set of questions. My book is really driven by three big questions. First, why were so many Americans so worried about Burr's intentions and actions between 1805 and 1807? In other words, why did this set of events rise to the level of a crisis in the minds of Burr's contemporaries. Second, how did so many Americans ultimately decide that they knew Burr's plans? Something that we have not been able to figure out with much broader access to sources than anyone at the time had. By the spring of 1807, most Americans seem to have accepted that Burr had intended to divide the Union at the Appalachians in order to create a new nation in the West under his control. Others were equally confident that Burr was merely the innocent victim of Jefferson's wrath. How had they managed to attain such certainty? And finally, how were these two things, the looming sense of crisis and the emerging certainty about Burr, related to each other. My book examines the Burr conspiracy from a new perspective, focusing more on the crisis that it generated and on the efforts to make sense of the conspiracy than on the conspiracy itself. What makes a crisis a crisis is not a particular series of events or state of affairs, but the relationship of those developments and conditions to a people's existing hopes and fears. 
the particular series of events that we lumped together as the Burr conspiracy occurred barely four decades after the Declaration of Independence and not even two decades after the Constitution. Now, from our perspective, those two documents settled a number of crucial issues, that Americans would be independent from Great Britain and from Europe, that they would be governed by Republican institutions, that they would join into a single nation spanning much of North America, at least east of the Mississippi. From their perspective, however, none of those things had truly been decided at the time of the Burr crisis. Americans felt tremendous anxiety, not just about whether their federal and Republican political institutions could survive, but even about whether they were one people who could live together as one nation. Between the spring of 1805 and the winter of 1807, the Burr conspiracy and the response to it seemed to imperil their hopes for an independent, Republican, united, and expanding country. And it inflamed their fears of foreign influence and domestic strife, of a shattered union and a failed republic. These fears showed people what might happen and in doing so helped them make sense of what was happening. These fears not only generated the air of crisis, but also fixed for many people at the time, the nature of the conspiracy itself in a way that the vague rumors, incomplete reports and conflicting claims about Burr's intentions and actions could not. Rather than retelling the story of the Burr conspiracy, my book focuses upon the stories about the Burr conspiracy that were told at the time and over the next few decades. These stories appeared in rumors and conversations in diaries and letters in newspaper articles and magazine essays in pamphlets and books in depositions and testimony and even in presidential messages and judicial rulings. Some of them represented little more than an individual effort to sort through uncertain information and events. They were prepared for their authors, perhaps a few readers or listeners. But others embodied a belief that properly told the story of Burr's or Wilkinson's or Jefferson's intentions and actions could serve important ends. Some of these stories influenced later stories. Others had little lasting impact. But taken together, the stories point to the various forces that influenced how people at the time worked through a mass of conflicting accounts to decide what to believe. They highlight the uncomfortable but growing impact of political partisanship and the consoling but diminishing force of public reputation. They point to the alarming prospects of disunion and tyranny and the tenuous balancing of local, state, regional, and national identity. In doing so, these stories reveal a people who were struggling to make sense of themselves and their world. Burr and Wilkinson's and Jefferson's contemporaries needed to ask and to answer these questions 
in a way that we, more than two centuries later, simply do not. They needed to make enough sense of the uncertain rumors, the differing reports, the conflicting charges to act, even if their actions extended only to supporting or opposing, approving or criticizing the more consequential actions of others. Like us, they were usually attempting to make sense of things that had already happened. But for them, those events also felt like a part of the present because they seem to invite or to require action in a way that they cannot for us. As people so often must, they decided what to do and what not to do, what to support and what to oppose with far less information than they wanted or even felt that they needed. In the midst of a crisis that was in some ways caused by their own uncertainty, they had to construct histories, meaning stories about the past from incomplete and incorrect information, even as history, meaning the events that would become the past, was being made based on the very stories that they were constructing. Sense-making is a basic human activity, one that exists across time and space, but it is also profoundly shaped by historically specific political, social, and cultural forces. By changing the questions, by trying to understand how Americans experienced the Burr crisis and how they made sense of the Burr conspiracy as it happened and in the decades that followed, rather than to discover exactly what Jefferson or Wilkinson or Burr thought. I highlight these different forces and the work that they did. The resulting story is necessarily different from one that again tries to answer the old questions. But I think it actually tells us much more about the early American Republic. Examining how vague rumors and uncertain reports about Burr's plans and actions became a crisis reveals the continuing fears about the fragility of the federal union, the instability of Republican governments, and the uncertainty of American nationalism exploring how people made sense of the Burr conspiracy shows them struggling to understand themselves at a time when the rapid political changes of the previous 40 years rested uneasily on more stable cultural forms. Just one second, let me get back to this. So I begin the book with a discussion of the institutional and cultural forces that shaped the movement of information at the time of the Burr crisis. A lot has been written in the last 20, 25 years or so on the mail and the press in this period. Less has been written on the impact of gentility and partisanship on what people wrote in letters and articles and how people read that material. After that chapter, the book unfolds in more or less chronological order across three big parts. Each part includes one chapter that highlights the importance of place for this process of sense-making. Local battles for political and social power produce very different reactions to Burr, Wilkinson, and Jefferson in central Kentucky and in western Pennsylvania, in New Orleans and in Natchez, in Richmond and in Philadelphia. 
when we examine these locally divergent understandings, we see the extent and nature of political partisanship, the reach of federal power and authority, the expectations for personal behavior that were shaped by class, gender, and culture, and the struggles over the political and social order of the new nation. Another chapter in each part investigates the power of specific stories. There were a few narratives that proved especially influential in helping people make sense of the Burr conspiracy. The famous cipher letter from Burr to Wilkinson, a long message from Jefferson to Congress, and a brief part of one of the prosecuting attorney's arguments at Burr's trial in Richmond. The explanatory power at the time and later of these documents bore little relationship though to their factual accuracy. It's not that they were powerful because they were right. They had power that came from other sources. The final chapter in each part considers the use of pre-existing stories as analogies to comprehend current events. Ancient and modern history, Europe's and their own, told Americans how their union might shatter how their republic might fall, and what kinds of men might bring about such horrors. Stories of the Mississippi crisis and the American Revolution, of Catiline and Napoleon, of wild bachelors and grasping aristocrats, help contemporaries to give order to the chaos of conflicting accounts and explanations. Separating these parts of the book are what I call interludes that explore how sense was made, contested, and remade during the Burr crisis and beyond by examining some specific events. And the book ends with a chapter on Jefferson's and Wilkinson's and Burr's final attempts to control the story of the Burr conspiracy as it passed into history using memoirs and other documents. Investigating the crisis and conspiracy in this way helps us to understand a period when political structures seemed very fluid and cultural forms offered needed stability. In political terms, those things that held the greatest promise, Republican government and federal union had always failed in the past and seemed unlikely to last far into the future. And the unwelcome emergence of seemingly unbridgeable party divisions at home and of seemingly unlimited warfare abroad multiplied the dangers and accelerated the changes the countervailing forces often seemed to come from a cultural realm that appeared more secure. A broadly shared sense of the importance of honor, reputation, and character played a critical role. It created bonds that allowed men to work together on political issues, helping both to promote and to overcome party divisions and it underwrote the system by which information was exchanged and evaluated, helping to make any decisions about public affairs possible. Such cultural forms allowed people to navigate the political world in a time when that world often threatened to change too much, too quickly, and in too many of the wrong directions. The Burr conspiracy never resulted in a battle between what were often called Burr's men and federal troops or state or territorial militiamen in the streets of New Orleans or in the swamps of the Mississippi Territory or even 
despite the administration's charges on the shores of Blennerhassett Island. Instead, the battles were fought through partisan newspapers and personal defense pamphlets, in assembly chambers and in courtrooms, on street corners and in taverns, and even on dueling grounds. Some battles raged without leaving any trace for us to study. Others produced the myriad of sources that I have tried to use to establish not what Burr or Wilkinson or Jefferson really thought, but what they and others wanted people at the time and after to think, and how their contemporaries and later generations came to understand the Burr conspiracy. Looking beyond the three principles reveals for a specific time and place, how people understood and explained their experiences, how they took public events and turned them to their own purposes, and how contemporary narratives shaped historical reconstructions. Accordingly, the book shifts among various levels of investigations. Sometimes it tells the story of the crisis itself. Sometimes it examines contemporary stories about the conspiracy. And sometimes it discusses later reconstructions of the story by biographers and historians, including myself. The subtitle of my book, Uncovering the Story of an Early American Crisis, thus has a dual meaning, representing both my effort to uncover the story of the Burke conspiracy for my readers and my examination of the, how those who lived through the Burke crisis constructed a story about it for themselves and for others at the time. Thank you. I'm happy to take questions about either the events themselves or about the approach of my book. Terrific, James. Thank you so much. What a tour de force. We have a number of questions and I'll try in the next 15 minutes to get to as many of them as possible. One question is funding. Where did the funding come from for, for uh, his men and uh, in boats and other supplies? Well, that was always a big question, uh, and it's, it was clear that uh, there were various merchants in different places uh, that had uh, gotten burned by the fact that they had accepted his notes, his promises, uh, and then when everything blew up, that that money wasn't going to be forthcoming. And so they tried to do various things to seize assets, uh, and one of the most uh, sort of most known at the time of his supporters was a, an Irish immigrant named Harmon Blennerhassett, who lived on an island uh, downstream from Marietta uh, and was quite wealthy. And uh, a lot of his assets were seized uh, in order to uh, uh, cover some of the debts that, uh, that had been taken out against Marietta merchants and Lexington, Kentucky merchants to uh, make this possible. Okay. Uh, another question is, did he do anything good before or after uh, killing Hamilton in a duel, obviously the, the events of the conspiracy can be characterized as bad. Well, I mean, I'm not a Burr biographer. Um, it, and it depends, of course, on your uh, perspective. Uh, he was instrumental in helping uh, Jefferson win the presidency in 1800. And he was instrumental uh, by um, the work he did to deliver New York City uh, to the Democratic Republican Party, which then allowed uh, them to deliver the electoral votes for New York State uh, to Jefferson. So if you're, uh, if you think that was the right way to go in 1800, then yes, he was good there. He was, he was um, 
very progressive on things like women's education. His daughter's uh, education was exemplary uh, and he viewed her uh, as uh, every bit as capable as uh, if he had had a son. Uh, there are some reasons to think that he was um, pretty advanced on, uh, on anti-slavery views, abolitionism, though he also did own um, slaves uh, and one traveled with him on uh, his expedition in the West. You anticipated another question uh, on slavery. Okay. Could you talk a little bit about his relationship with uh, uh, Ben Franklin, if any? Uh, I can't. I, I, as I said, I'm not really a Burr biographer, so I, I don't know the answer to that. Sure. Uh, can you talk a little bit more, you mentioned this in passing, about the role of Chief Justice Marshall in acquitting him at the trial? Okay. Uh, well, this was a period when the Supreme Court justices also rode circuit. And Marshall was uh, from Richmond, uh, and his circuit included uh, Virginia. Uh, and the trial ended up in Richmond because the, the charge was for what had happened on Blennerhassett Island. Uh, and this was a period when uh, that was, you know, West Virginia was not a separate state. So uh, Blennerhassett Island is currently uh, a part of West Virginia. It was then a part of Virginia, uh, even though hundreds of miles from Richmond. So the trial occurred in Richmond and Marshall, uh, along with uh, a, another judge, uh, Cyrus Griffin, who basically said nothing and did nothing, uh, presided over uh, the sequence of trials or sequence of phases, I guess a better way to say it. Uh, and there was really five separate phases uh, highlighted by these two trials, the treason trial and the misdemeanor trial. Uh, and he was, um, his decision on the treason trial in particular, created a very narrow definition of what treason was. Uh, the, the problem turned on the fact that Burr simply wasn't there on Blennerhassett Island on December 10th, 1806, when the events that were charged uh, against him uh, took place. And the prosecution case was, uh, well, he doesn't have to be. He's the one who got all these men and boats and supplies together. The fact that he was a couple hundred miles away in Nashville shouldn't matter. And uh, Marshall took a, a very strict line that uh, because he wasn't there, because no, there were two witnesses to the same act of treason, uh, that there really wasn't a case here. Of course, the, the jury got to make the final decision, but he had basically made it impossible for them to decide that, that he was guilty. At which point, Jefferson decided that the real important thing to accomplish with all, with all of this was not to try Burr for treason, but to change uh, the power of Supreme Court justices, to, to make them more easily removed from office by Congress or the people. That that would be the real achievement. Uh, that, you know, whether Burr, Burr was, was so, so defeated that he was never going to matter again. But this was the moment to bring um, a branch that was really dominated by the opposition party under the people's control. Interesting. C could the case be made that the conspiracy might not have happened but for the duel and the opprobrium that uh, attended Burr after the duel, the killing of Hamilton? Yeah, I would go beyond that to say that the case can be made that there was no conspiracy at all. Uh, and one of the first footnotes in my book says, well, I'm going to say Burr conspiracy all through this book. That doesn't mean that I believe that there was a conspiracy to do anything illegal, right? I, I don't think we know that for sure, right? We don't know. Uh, we know that... Uh, uh, some of the pieces of this. But I do think that uh, had, Burr, um, had Burr been kept on, 
1804. Uh, so we might want to go one step back before the duel, right? That uh, if Jefferson had kept him in the vice presidency in 1804, it's, I, I think it's probably unlikely uh, that this would have happened. Uh, the duel didn't help. Uh, it meant that uh, um, there was really nothing for him in the East after that. Could you, I mean, you've talked about this in passing, of course, but could you elaborate on the relationship between Jefferson and Burr and what Jefferson thought of Burr both before and after the conspiracy or crisis? Yeah, I don't think uh, either of them ever really trusted each other. Uh, they saw the value in having each other working on this common goal of advancing the party, uh, the, the opposition, what was then the opposition to first Washington and then John Adams. Uh, Burr felt that he had been betrayed by Virginians in the election of 1796, that they had had not given him their full support uh, in that year. And then in 1800, I hope everybody knows this, 1800 was one of, you know, you think we had a terrible election. This was <laughs> one of the terrible elections of all time. Jefferson and Burr uh, ended up uh, at the end of the Electoral College with the same number of votes. There was no you're voting for president or vice president at that point. Uh, it was whoever got the most was president, whoever got the next most was vice president. And so it had to go to the House of Representatives where the House voted by states. Uh, and the Federalists didn't uh, wanted to try to throw the election to Burr because they hated Jefferson and they thought Burr had no principles. Uh, and, and Jefferson came out of that process uh, convinced that, that Burr had no principles and that he could not be trusted. And so, long before these events, uh, there was very little common ground between them. Jefferson had never thrown patronage uh, jobs uh, towards Burr supporters in New York City, uh, and it had never, ever been good. Could you tell a little bit about foreign powers, Britain, France, what role did, the, if any, did they play in this, and what was Burr's interaction with them during the course of this? Uh, Burr, Burr met with the British there was no ambassador, but the British minister uh, in Washington uh, and uh, laid out a plan that included um, uh, dividing the union. Uh, it also included attacking uh, Spanish Mexico and trying to um, break Spain, uh, break Mexico away from Spain. Uh, Britain and Spain were at war, I think at this moment. Uh, he also met with, or his agents met with uh, the Spanish minister uh, who didn't want to live in DC, hate to say this, there was no DC to speak of in 1804-1805, and so the Spanish minister thought that would be hardship duty to have to live there. So he lived in Philadelphia. Uh, he met with uh, the Spanish minister, uh, told him that the plan was to break apart the Union, uh, and got some uh, a sympathetic hearing from both, both though not really any monetary support uh, from either. Uh, France wasn't involved at that point, though. After Burr's trial, he went off to Europe, kind of in a self-imposed exile. And at that point, he went to Napoleon, one of Napoleon's agents, and he said, I've got this plan. I, I will go back. You can send me back there, and I will do one of these things, uh, secure the uh, uh, Spanish Mexico or break apart the Union. I think it's fair to say, you tell me if you agree, that the Burke conspiracy is relatively unknown. I mentioned that in the introduction. If you agree with that, why do you think, relative to the duel and other aspects of Burr and our early founding fathers, do you think that's the case? Uh, I do think it's the case. I, I think it's a relatively recent phenomenon, though. I think it was, uh, it was 
very well known, certainly through the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and you know, there were, there's still every few years, a book comes out on either Burr or the Burr conspiracy. Uh, I've got on my desk at home, a manuscript on James Wilkinson that I'm reading for a press. So there, it's still out there. And it's a lot of it is um, more in the, the popular side than the scholarly side, right? My, my, uh, my scholarly book on the Burr conspiracy was, was the first in, a, in quite a long time. There have been books on the Burr trial um, because it's uh, legal scholars see that as very important for kind of establishing what trees of law would be and, and everything. Right. Um, it's it's out there. It's uh, I don't know. There's a lot going on in that period, and I'm not sure people figure out how to um, how to fit it in. Right? Uh, that that may be the best explanation. Without asking you again to be a biographer, can you talk a little bit about what happened to Burr post crisis and how he lived out the rest of his life? Okay, uh, he did go to Europe uh, for a, almost exactly four years afterwards. Uh, and starting the summer of 1808, he came back just before the War of 1812 broke out. Uh, and um, after that, he was uh, he was he would live for another uh, 24 years, and and he was pretty quiet. He was a lawyer in New York. He had some uh, some real tragedy. His beloved daughter, uh, in coming back to see him, she lived in uh, South Carolina. She died at sea uh, in. Uh, right at the turn of the year from 1812 to 1813. His beloved grandchild, his only grandchild, uh, had died right about the time he got back. So there were, uh, there were some tragedies and he just kind of um, disappeared. He wasn't politically active. Uh, he remarried kind of a scandalous marriage to a, a New York actress uh, late in life. And one of the last things that he did before he died was, uh, was to get a divorce. Terrific. So final question, Professor, to kind of wrap it up. Why would you say uh, the Burr conspiracy was important and what are its implications for us today? Why should we care about it today? Yeah, well, as I said, I, I think for me, the, the thing to care about was what it reveals about how people thought at the time. Uh, you know, is it a conspiracy that's ever likely to come around again? Of course not, right? Uh, are we ever gonna to have to deal with its repercussions? Of course not. Um, but does it help to think about how people uh, live in the world and make sense of the things that are going on around them, right? What, what, are, what are the inputs that are shaping how I, I decide you know, what happened and what matters about what happened two and a half weeks ago? Uh, at the Capitol building, right? Uh, how much of it's coming from uh, the press and the media? How much of it's coming from my pre-existing ideas about who these people might be and who the people who were urging them on were, right? Where am I learning that stuff, right? I wasn't there. I don't know. I don't know what was in the minds of, of any of these people. Thank God, I will say. Uh, I don't. I don't know. So thinking about how uh, in a crisis two centuries ago, people figured out, okay, I know this is confusing, but I've got to, to decide what this means and whether I'm in favor of it or against it and whether how far to support the people who are in favor of it or the people who are against it. That seems to me like uh, the, the kind of most meaningful thing to draw from this. And, and you know that's really where the book landed. I didn't set out to write that book. I set out to write the book that would tell the real story, finally figure out uh, Burr's and Wilkinson's and Jefferson's 
uh, intentions. And it, it proved impossible. And it also, uh, I learned as I went along that I, I was discovering things that were much more interesting about how sense was made in this time and in this climate. Terrific. Thank you so much, Professor. We've learned a lot today, thanks to you. And I look forward to reading the book. Thank you very much.